A long time ago, a group of young males had gathered together to discuss current geopolitical policies and the negative impacts of crony capitalism when they decided to take the evening to its next logical conclusion. A biscuit was brought out, and the men all dropped their trousers and began to pleasure themselves. Upon reaching climax, each participant was instructed to ejaculate on the biscuit, with the last person to orgasm having to ingest the biscuit. For some reason, this game was mostly played at top-tier private schools and local sports teams. This game goes by many names, Soggy Sayo, Crispy Cookie, and Limp Biscuit. And in 1994, a young man who seemed to lack the ability to wear his hat forwards, Fred Durst, got together with some friends and formed a band named after this game. That band was, of course, Limp Biscuit. And in 1999, they released their second album, Significant Other, an album that hit me right between my eyes as I was 13, key demographic, and my brain had yet to fully form. Doing it all for the nookie was not yet something I could relate to. However, as someone who did pack a chainsaw and was willing to skin an ass raw, the song Break Stuff is forever tattooed on my frontal lobe. Many years later in a karaoke booth in Shanghai, I was lucky enough to witness the members of New Zealand band God Bows to Math sing along to many Limp Bizkit songs, Break Stuff included, without having to look at the lyrics even once. They also did a heart-wrenching rendition of Three Doors Down Kryptonite, but that's a story for another time. Benji... How readily do you think you can recall all of the lyrics to Break Stuff? Well, it was a national anthem, wasn't it? I'll be honest with you, Reese. I was half expecting you to ask me when's the last time I played Limp Biscuit myself. What a weird game. Which I have to now because we're now in a new national lockdown, so I've got no one else to play Limp Biscuit with. I'm pretty sure that's how you guys decide to leave Brexit. What, by playing Soggy Biscuits? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Boris Johnson was the last two. That's the UK, <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a private schoolboy as well, wasn't he? I mean, if, if you have a look at kind of the past prime ministers that we've had, one of them, David Cameron, got accused of sticking his dick in a pig's head. So um, I'm pretty sure I can readily remember most of the lyrics to um, Break Stuff by Limp Biscuit. So it's one of those days when you don't want to wake up, everybody's fucked, everybody sucks. You don't really know why, but you want to justify ripping someone's head off. No human contact, and if you interact, your life is on contract. Your best bet is to stay away, motherfucker. It's just one of those days. It's all about the he said, she said bullshit. I think you better trip letting I think you better quit. trip letting th- I think you better quit letting things slip. I think it's shit slip or something. Anyway, yeah. It's about I'm going to leave you stuff. with a fat lip. It is about breaking stuff. It's about teenage angst. It's about just waking up one day and just being pissed off with the world. And my goodness me, didn't Limp Biscuit make a lot of money out of it? I mean, that was basically what caused Woodstock there at their Woodstock set. That's basically what caused all the shit to go down, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. And then there was that tragedy at the, I think, Sydney uh, Big Day Out where a young girl uh, sadly was who died uh, in the mosh pit. I mean, that, yeah, that was sad, man. I mean, the problem is also that um, it, w- it would have been easy to, to blame bands because uh, when that happened, there was a big focus about we really need to get a grip on how we control crowds. I was at a leeds festival the year system of a down played and there was a crowd surge and they had to stop the set because the front barriers broke through you know there's the stage there's the gap where security are in the photo pit and then there's a barrier and then there's people now if you've been to a festival you understand how hard how heavy duty those crowd barriers can be so how much um, weight how much pressure must be placed on a body or two for them just to actually break through it i'm not going to make light about that big day out thing because that was incredibly sad oh, a tragedy uh, i will make oh yeah definitely definitely a tragedy but i will make light still of limp biscuit as a whole man look to be perfectly honest this podcast has fucked me up sideways you've heard some voice messages i've been getting some to you but a lot to other friends because in doing research on this podcast, and we don't, we do not claim to be a well-researched podcast, but I listened to a podcast episode on the Hundred, I think is what it's called. Um, no, it's this is not a podcast by Bobby Hundred, and it's called Blow Up Fred Durst. 
And in this podcast, Fred Durst claims that he is some sort of troll. He's rewriting history as some sort of Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton-esque, who's the real me? I was just making fun of these jocks and now the, and then the jocks became our fans. And I think it is total bullshit. And because of this, I was thinking, is me believing not sorry, is me not believing him, him playing 4D chess? And he's like, I knew you wouldn't believe me, and now you're a sucker too because you don't see the joke. So I like I've got a little grab, a tiny grab from the podcast if you haven't heard it. Okay. Rage Against the Machine. I was feeling, oh, this is amazing. And then there was corn and deftones and all and I was like, wow, where could how do we fit in this place? I'll go and troll everybody. And I'll find a way to just make fun of every band that I think is dope. Every rapper, everything I can do, I'll just parody it and play it straight. I call absolute bullshit on that. Why would you make fun of bands that that inspire or that you enjoy? It just seems a bit mean-spirited. I'm going to absolutely steal something from you here, Reese, okay? Uh, I call bullshit on it as well. I believe it is revisionist history. It is akin to Tommy Wiseau claiming that The Room was a piece of metafictional humor. It was... it was post-ironic, which is a phrase I've been learning a lot more about, uh, where there is a level of irony involved at the same time as a level of earnestness. So, for example, The Room, it's intentionally meant to be shit because it's meant to be ironic, but it's presented in such an earnest way that it could be misconceived as, you know, oh, it's just really bad filmmaking. And Tommy Wiseau now has come out not now, but recently has come out in the last year or two saying, no, 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 but that's the thing. That's what I'm trying to do, you know? Oh, hi, Mark. (laughs) It's revisionist history. It is the situation where it's very different, though, because for The Room, it got absolutely panged for being shit and then came back into, came back with great furor, because it was so bad it was good but you don't see the same shit happening with a movie like birdemic which is really really fucking the pits that it's so good why fred durst would lean into this whole kind of post-ironic take on his back catalog when they made the money you know they were always they weren't even critically reviled at times i think Three dollar bill, y'all got some really good reviews because a lot of people felt that it was an artistic take on the burgeoning new metal scene, and significant others, significant other. I only think that they got reviled when they got a lot more bigger. Fred Durst got a lot more cockier, which is saying something as well. And they released Chocolate Starfish, and it's one of those situations, Reese. I think there was antipathy towards them because they were fucking everywhere weren't they they were on movie soundtracks they were on uh primetime television they were like blowing up festival circuits fred durst was being opinionated so to listen to that clip that he said uh, yeah i call bullshit i don't think he's just i think he's a clever guy because he took the money and he ran with it but i don't think he's some dadaist andy kaufman type by any means all right, one, yeah, I cannot agree more because I, so I listened to $3 Bill Yore and it's, it's a bit raw and it's a bit more earnest. And then later you can yeah. see, in, I listened to all the albums. I listened to greatest hits. I went in deep. I listened to a bunch of other podcasts with him he, um, on the subsequent albums. He doesn't ham it up and, and maybe this is his old grand plan and all will be revealed in the end. And he's like, but I feel like, it's not a joke if no one knows it's a joke. If there's not one, someone in the crowd going, I get it. Like there's a wink or a, a subtle nod. It, it, I've got a coworker who, who will say, hey, Reese, I had Mexican last night. And I said, oh, did you? She's like, no, I had to tell you, you fucking idiot. Can't believe you fell for that. That's not a joke. That's just a lie. It's like that scene off the first Borat movie, which is, you know, he's learning how to use sarcasm. Not. It's a bit like that. Um. I do think that Limp Biscuit around Gold Cobra era did lean into the whole 
I know that we're a bit of a joke and people are laughing at us. So let's just hammer up to the extreme. I mean, the video for Gold Cobra, for example, was just them playing in a viaduct, you know, Thunder Road, if you're a Grease fan, with a very well-endowed female in a bikini and boxer gloves and just a bling bling. It was either a Bugatti or a limousine. Yeah, I, I get it. I can see the joke there. They're hamming up the idea of this new aesthetic where rock stars aren't in torn jeans or anything like that. It's kind of bling bling ghetto fabulous for lack of a term. But are you telling me that when they recorded things like videos for rearranged or videos for Nokia or anything like that, that it was kind of a, yeah, you know, it's just a little wink to the people that are in on the joke. If it's a joke, it's an end joke. It's like tool. In another interview I heard, or maybe even this one, I can't remember. I listened to so many, man. I was like full Charlie from It's Always Sunny. Like I had the string and the newspaper. <laughs> I was Carrie from Homeland. And he claims that Wes Borland left the band because Wes Borland was just sick of the character of Fred Durst. But like, no, he was just sick of it all. And then Fred Durst called him up after a few years or whatever and just said, hey, man, i just let you know, it's all been a joke. Like I've been a character. This is a troll. I'm just making fun of the, the scene and the situation. And Wes Borland was like, oh, I get it. Now I'm in on the joke. I will come back. Nothing to do with the money, you know. But if, if the person you're touring with and you spend 23 hours a day with doesn't know that you're playing a character, either you are the most method Daniel Day-Lewis motherfucker on earth backstage at, you know, Lollapalooza, just full, um, there will be blooding around. I drink your milkshake or you're a piece of shit who's now like 52 or whatever and going, ah, I was actually a genius the whole time, but none of you guys realized it because you're all dumb, stupid people. But maybe us talking about this is his ultimate plan. And he is like Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton. Are they the same person or not? Who the fuck knows? Get out of my head, Fred Durst. He then also then... He goes on to produce, he, he's very similar in my mind to Adam Sandler in that at times flashes of brilliance, flashes of like, I, I still love the latest Adam Sandler stand-up special. I loved him in Uncut Gems. He had some other good moments. Happy Gilmore wasn't a steaming pile of shit. But now that he's got his money and he has all of the resources, what does he produce? Utter fucking shit. Herbie Halloween or whatever it's called. And the fanatic. So all of a sudden, you're not doing it for the money anymore. You're not doing it for the accolades. You're doing, you can do whatever you want and you still choose the fucking bottom basement, lowest common denominator bullshit. That's I also, like Adam Sandler, very, very good at bringing his more talented friends down to his level. Hey, Method Man, you're an acclaimed rapper? Come say, shut the fuck up or whatever, you know, just be on my rap track. Uh, Redman, come on here. Jonathan Davis, the only good song on this album, really, the one with Jonathan Davis. Get on over and, and yeah, lift me up because I can't be fucked. Hey, David Spade and Kevin James, come do some fart jokes, would you? Jennifer Aniston, Drew Barrymore, fucking get on my track and rap with me, you fucking piece of shit. Oh, I, I, I really dislike it. I didn't realize Adam Sandler had a rap album, man. No, I was, I was I was confusing uh, Fred Durst and Adam Sandler at various points, and I'm pretty sure Drew Barrymore <laughs> was on the B side of, of Break Stuff. Hey, man, I've, I've never seen Adam Sandler and Fred Durst in the same room at the same time, so we could be through the looking glass here. You're like Jim Carrey from the number 23, man. I think you're getting well too <laughs> obsessed into this stuff, you know? You um, piece of shit. <laughs> in Adam Sandler's defense... Um, he makes shit movies, but then he also provides work for a lit uh, for a litany of people that perhaps need the money, especially during the pandemic. He's apparently going to be making, uh, he's going to be go good on his threat or do good on his threat, as as regular people would say, to make the worst possible comedy movie, which on one side is. Oh, so he's going to make a sequel to Jack and Jill. Oh, okay, right. But then on the other side, you can admire him for like making sure that people are still making money to, you know, basically survive in a COVID world. But that's me just being earnest about Adam Sandler. With Fred Durst, I, again, it's revisionist history, I feel. Um, yeah. Victory, uh, so history is always written by the winners, isn't it? So in this case, Fred Durst's big victory is that 
he was by rights in the biggest new metal band of the new millennium. So if he's turning around claiming that it's this 4D chest that the whole thing was uh, performance art, I'm not buying it, to be honest with you. I'm really not. Like, good for him if uh, he feels that way looking back. But if you're a guitarist who you were standing six meters from, if you're in the studio with me, Benji, and I'm like, hey, man, um, play this riff. It'd be really funny because it's big and dumb and it'll get the dumb jocks jumping. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's really funny. And you're like, hey, kind of rip off uh, 311 or whatever, you know, rip off the Beastie Boys and we'll kind of pay homage to them and 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 you were into that great but it doesn't sound like wes borland was in on that he was just like look i'm an amazing guitarist but i'll just play these fucking you know drop d riffs i don't really care oh well well, let's let's hold up a minute let's just go way back to what we discussed uh, at the start of the podcast the whole big day out situation surely something as tragic as that if someone is engaging in like some very deep cover performance art surely something like that an artist would stop recognize the damage that's being done and maybe come out at that point in time and say look this whole thing's a bit of a joke and it's gotten out of hand i would have assumed that that would have been the case because it's you know it's not art it's not tasteful art anymore or you know tasteless art if we're talking about Limp Biscuit. So if he is now assuming that it was a big troll and that this was just all a big performance that it was just him getting some yucks, it was a big joke for the jocks surely then it must be even fucking worse, you know weighing on his mind that through this kind of stupid moronic joke as he's trying to portray as now that okay but through this joke's not funny because fucking people died and then people got fucking raped at another festival so if you're turning around and saying that this whole thing was was a joke it was a troll it's not that funny because people got hurt and jokes should not hurt people yeah, well put. In their defense, and I don't want to get legal or anything, I listened to um, the Big Day Out series on it. It's really, really fascinating. But uh, Limp Bizkit did do a lot right. Like, he did try and stop, and there were a lot of things happened. And then Big Day Out did, I think, bring in the D-barrier after that. And th- there's a part of me that does think, if you invite a band like B- Limp Bizkit, expect shit's going to happen. If you're booking Mount oh, ex- Erie or, or yeah. Devendra Bandhart or Cat Stevens or Yusuf, um, I forget his name now, but if you book them and there's a huge mosh pit, it's like, I did not foresee this. If you're booking Limp Bizkit who fucking destroyed Woodstock 99, you kind of know what you're getting. And, and you kind of, you, of course you don't want tragedy like that. No. But you do, you do want sensationalist media suddenly, you know, talking about you. Oh, controversial act booked. Uh you know, it just happened to, to go horribly, horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Horribly but, wrong. But believe it or not, Fred Durst is not the worst part of Limp Bizkit for me. Is he not? He He's not because I think he's quite a smart businessman. I watched his two and a half hour documentary. Full Jesus of like- Christ, Reese. You've really gone in on this one, haven't you? I shudder to think what the Static X one's going to be like. It'll be me and you, like, dissecting. In childhood, Wayne Static once hung upside down on the monkey bars and its hair <laughs> caught the attention of many people. So through those childhood deeds, he decided to then spike his hair up. Anyway, your two-and-a-half-hour wank over uh, Limp Biscuit. So the Limp Biscuit subreddit is fantastic. There's a guy who just got the Live Love Limp Biscuit tattoo. People are st- in 2020 are still getting tattoos of Limp Biscuit. Uh, God, Lord knows what 2021 is going to hold. But pe- some this this dude made a two and a half hour documentary, and I watched every second of it. And it, it had long interviews, even with Fred's family, of like him when he was young. Uh, and it was like he always said he wanted to be famous. He always was just like he said he was going to be big. He was raised a Wiccan or something. He had a pretty weird, maybe a disturbing or traumatic childhood, but he seems to know talent and he seems to, like, he says he, he says he's not a singer or a musician, he's an MC and he's good at getting the crowd hyped up. I don't even, I don't even think that. He just kind of says get up, jump up a lot and then, like, kind of pecks at the floor like a chicken, you know? Like, he doesn't do 
too much. But he, he's a clever dude and he knows how to conduct himself. And, you know, the fact that I'm still in 2021 trying to get my head around, like, if he is some sort of master of puppets pulling on my mental strings, you know, he's living in my head rent free. But John Otto is by far the worst thing about Limp Biscuit, the fucking drummer. Doesn't he remind you a little bit of um, the evil scientist sidekick on South Park? Oh, what was that Mephusto? Dr. 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 Mephisto's sidekick. Mephisto. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, no, I don't know. Um, I don't... Oh, what is, a, what is yes. a Matthews Bridge? Oh, okay, so th- this is true. Um, from my research, and I, I probably will um, Mr. Bungle this, it's it's a it's a shout out to Dave Matthews because they were like, hey, it's a do a Dave Matthews bridge or, um, it, it, or they were backstage with Dave Matthews. It is a is a direct link to Dave Matthews. Would you like to play a game? At the start of Limp Biscuit songs, Fred Durst often yells out, you know, he references John Otto. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a game for you. Um, it's called, I don't know, which John are they talking about? I've got five lyrics. You tell me, is the John? Okay. Is the John sung by Fred Durst or someone else? Okay, the first one is John Otto, Break It On Down. Would that be about the South Park scientist uh, helper, the assistant, or someone else? John Otto, Break It On Down. But it definitely sounds part of Fred Durst's lexicon. So I'm going to say, yeah, it's, it's, it's Fred Durst. It's a Limp Biscuit reference. It's auto-tunage. Well done. Number two. This is the story about bald-headed John. It seems a little too pleasant to be Limp Biscuit. It's lacking that certain kind of pissed-off attitude, so I'm going to say no. Yeah, you're correct. That was Frank Zappa uh, doing work for Yuda. John Otto, kick it to the Matthews Bridge. Dave Matthews Band? <laughs> Incorrect. That was Limp Biscuit. It's Limp Biscuit. Soggy we just spoke about it, man. I was just fourteen chess. What's you. the name of the song? What's the name of the song? Uh, Motherfucker equals Redeemer by Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Wrong it was my generation. And just for listeners, I'm not just a fuckhead on this podcast. I've this is a character I'm playing. I'm actually a very articulate, well-spoken man. And if you thought I was a fuckhead at any point. Jokes on you. <laughs> wink, wink to the people who didn't know uh, or did know I wasn't a fuckhead. Saw a flea, kick a tree, fuba wooba, fuba wooba. Saw a flea, kick a tree, fuba wooba, John. Saw a flea, kick a tree in the middle of the sea. I'm, I'm actually going to say that is Limp Biscuit, but that's the shitty side of Limp Biscuit. Like everything post um, results may vary. Wrong. That was Fuba Wuba John by Burl Ives from the Fantastic Mr. Fox soundtrack. Oh, you can understand my confusion there, can't you? Well, to be fair, Fuba Wuba Fuba Wuba is probably too highbrow of a lyric for Fred Durst to come back. I don't, I don't know. Like, Fuba Wuba Fuba Wuba <laughs> Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> Kick it to the Matthews Bridge. Fox. Last one. And we made sure that John keeps them beats fat. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely, definitely Limp Biscuit, isn't it? That's on Just Like This, which is, um, that's the second track on Significant Other? Oh, I, I Just think, Like I, This! The one thing I hate about this album, besides John Otto, and I'll get to that, is the intro is called Intro. Well, what did you want it to be called, man? It's like going to the art gallery and seeing Untitled. Just call it Fuba Wuba John. Like, who cares? <laughs> Put in subtle bullshit mathematical references to, like the Fibonacci sequence like tool and be like, uh, let's let the fucking idiots try and decipher this intro. Yeah, but it, it could have been worse. The start of oh, the first track on the album's called Start. Nah, I love it. My old band used to have a song where we'd start it with the word begin. We wouldn't even count him. We're just like, begin and we just start. That, that's how you do it. It was post-hardcore. This album starts off pretty good, but then it, it meanders into the fucking nothingness. But let me talk about John Otto, all right? Okay. Why? What's your beef? What's your beef with John Otto? In your heart, in your subconscious, you know, in your third eye, you can kind of tell which area of the show the musician is playing towards, which crowd. 
Fred Durst is playing for the whole audience, yeah? Yep. But not for the side of the stage, yeah? Some musicians play for the musicians backstage or at the back. Some play for the people at the back. John Otto is purely playing for the people on the side of the stage. He is desperate to be seen as a good drummer, and he is an incredible drummer. He is very, very good. I think he has a jazz background. But he is needlessly busy, and there is not one middle eight in a song. There's no, like, quiet part where he isn't tapping on all the cymbals at once. Like, he's just like... You don't need it, John. Your your role as as any musician is to service the song, not necessarily to service your ego. Yes, you have little um, pop-ups or flares where you can show off your talents and you can make it fun for yourself. But the whole time, and it's amazing that people dance to this because it's never, it's very rarely on, you know, the snare's very only, very rarely on the two or the three. He kind of adds in like all these syncopated beats purely to be clever, you know, um, a lot of busy hi-hat work, a little bit of splash work, probably inspired by Slipknot who made, who was sponsored by Big Splash. We know that. But he's just playing to the side of the stage and the people with lanyards. Now, I think on the Family Values Tour, I think he, he, he wanted more, you know, and he actually turned the drum kit to the side, Incubus style, so people could see his busy footwork and busy hands. Because if you're a drummer and you're very, very good, it's very hard to see what you're doing if you're at the back, yeah? Oh, is that why? Uh, is that why Meg White does it as well? Exactly why Meg White and Meshuggah do it. You know, they're, they're yeah. linked. <laughs> I actually don't know if Meshuggah do it. I'd love to see Meshuggah live. All I've seen is their like live clip of their lighting guy going nuts. I just think John Otto is. You know, I think Wes Borland's in his own world and and playing for himself just for fun. I still don't know why he was the one guy who dressed up. He's like Silverchair. Daniel John started dressing up after ne- oh, during Neon Ballroom, uh, after Neon Ballroom, not Ballroom. And meanwhile, the other guys are wearing like, you know, boardies and surfing singlets. And you're like, oh my God, you got this Marilyn Manson-esque guy crossed with Kurt Cobain. And then you got the local guy from the skate store on bass and drums. It doesn't make sense. Where's Ballroom? You look at him and you could tell the bassist, I, is it Sam Rivers? I don't know. Yeah, it is Sam he's, Rivers. He's like, I can't be fucked with the makeup. Can I just put on some weird eye contacts and do this a weird head thing? Is that cool? And the drummer's like, can I just wear like the Space Jam singlet? That'd be cool. And Fredo's like, I got my hat. I'm cool. But meanwhile, Wes Borland would have had to leave the backstage area or like, you know, the, the dressing room for so many hours before the show. Like, Sorry, guys. It's been great hanging out. I've got to put my makeup on for seven hours now and get these incredibly baggy pants. Uh, I'd love to hang out. But, you know, this is important to our show. What, what benefit were you dressing up with, Borland? Hold on, but there is a benefit because that's seven hours that he doesn't have to be around the method act of Fred Durst. So Fred talks about this. He uh, <laughs> told you I went in deep. Wes had his own dressing room and didn't actually hang out with them. It's, yeah, and when, you, when you're young, you kind of think musicians are a soul family. They're, they're a deep connection. But as you get older, you realise it's a job and I don't have those connections with my co-workers, you know. Um it, it's, a, it's a job and they just travel, they sit next to them on the plane, they go to their own dressing room, they sit. It would have been awful before mobile phones and computers and shit. Yeah. I mean, the idea of uh, when you hear bands talking about, yeah, man, it's like a brotherhood, we're all best friends. I used to feel that way when I was working in an office, you know, uh, the whole idea of like, these are my friends. But musicians, for the most part, they're just acquaintances. I mean. If you're a musician, you're in a band and you have that that kinship, then that's great. You know, that's something really special. But for the most part, like you said, Reese, it is kind of like a business. It is more. That's really sad, though, if you think about it, that a young band that grows up together and those formative years end up being nothing but business transactions and just acquaintances um going back to why john otto keeps putting fills in if i can make a wrestling analogy for a minute i i honestly do not believe we have enough wrestling analogies i want constant wrestling analogies okay so there's a concept where if you're wrestling a dark match or essentially a match against a higher tiered wrestler. If you go on a YouTube, you can watch a whole bunch of stuff by a company called all elite wrestling. They have a, 
uh, AEW Dark, which is effectively their main roster and a couple of independent people. You know, basically, it's to make the main person that they want to get over, that they want popular to basically be on, uh, you know, the smaller independent guy that's not been signed. But there's a core belief of GMSI, which is get my shit in, which is I'll get as much offense, as much cool things as possible to get over with the crowd, despite me having to do a job, despite me having to lose, essentially. So maybe that's the feeling with John Otto is that I'm in the background, like Fred Durst is the personality, Wes Borland is basically the kind of uh, weirdo kind of freak show aspect, the savant, as it were. Sam Rivers is just minding his own business because I'm a big fan of Sam Rivers. So John Otto's in the background, and we forget DJ Lethal as well, who's providing samples and doing his thing. Who left House of Pain for the band. Yeah, he did. So John Otto, with all those fills, is basically getting his shit in. It's kind of, I, I, I'm I, a drummer, and drummers get a lot of shit anyway, let's be honest, Reese. You know, how do you know a drummer's at your door, the knocking's off beat? <laughs> drummers, get, drummers get a lot of shit. So him doing all those fills and intricate kind of moments and being too busy, it's perhaps him overcompensating the fact that he is a background character in Limp Biscuit. It's kind of yeah. sad. I can understand your annoyance because you're a drummer, but I can also appreciate a huge heap of empathy where, you know, Sam Rivers and John Otto are perhaps overlooked, and yet a rhythm section in a band is incredibly important. But I, th- I really believe that... Uh... That is the ideal situation. You don't have to do as many interviews. You still get to tour. You still get probably not as much money, to be honest. You still get a little bit of the fame, but without all of the responsibility and the burden. And you can kind of sit back. When shit gets heavy, no one's going to Sam Rivers for a quote. They're going to Fred Durst. And Wes Borland, you might don a, a sweater at some point to appear more more human and not and and a, be a red face. Re- a red and black sweater, right? Stripy red and black, Freddy Krueger style sweater. In the interviews I saw, he was just wearing like a, a beige, light brown sort of uh, sweater. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I think, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely something to it. I think he's just a, a great drummer. And it's harder to be a great drummer playing dumb beats than it is to be a, a great guitarist playing dumb riffs. Because Wes Borland seems to, like, he's an amazing musician who plays some dumb riffs. And, and yeah, it works. Like, the, the riff to break stuff is so simple it makes head up look like mozart you know it's but yeah i don't know i just i think he's not servicing the songs but obviously they sold big the amount of like these albums in this era how influential they were to me at the time have made zero impact on my drumming like i'm a very one two three four one two three four one two three four like i love that most of these new metal bands like like they're so busy and i'm not that particularly busy um and i like to keep that that steady beat it's it's really weird to to think about now i probably You're, took away that raw energy everything needs to be 100 100 you know at 100 yeah, at but, all times but Reese, you always seem very pragmatic with your approaches to things as well. As much as you're playing 4D chess with listeners of Baggio Death Trip, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a crazy Australian, eh? I'm pretty fucked up. You know, you're playing oh, 4D chess, I'm... right? No, I don't. I can't do an Australian impression. I can't. New Zealanders well, can never do an Australian man. impression because a New Zealander trying to do an impression of an Australian just basically sounds like a New Zealander from the North Shore. Fact. Maybe it's the pragmatist in you that realizes that, you know what, I don't need to have a busy drum beat. I can just, a real steady driving drum beat, a real steady driving bass line is more than enough to get over with the with the crowd. Christ, that's another wrestling analogy. More than enough to get over with people. Uh, the groove that I need to implement within this song. And John Otto could be the same way, but Maybe he should have just kept to the Matthews Bridge. Yeah, agreed. Uh, look, I was in a lot of two-piece bands as well, so like I probably had 50% of your attention anyway. And every single band, I've made sure to have a mic because I talk in between the... Maybe, um, maybe you had 100% of my attention that night in Auckland. 100%. Keep 
can I can I talk about look I I didn't want this podcast to be like here's the reason these albums are shit because some of them are fucking great and some of them have great moments and formative moments that spark real joy and nostalgia in my brain and I've got a kind of a list of as to why I hate Limp Biscuit. Can I go through that with you? Yeah, go through it, and then maybe we'll go to an ad break so uh, myself and the listeners can digest, maybe ruminate a little bit about this list. So, look, the floor is all yours. I, look, I ultimately hate that Limp... And feel free to chime in. I hate that Limp Biscuit. Like, Fred Durst really thinks Shut the Fuck Up is the ultimate comeback. Like, that is the height of wit um, for him. Like, there is nothing more you can say behind... Shut, if, if I say shut the fuck up, that's it. You're out. You're done. Yeah, but then, you know, shut the fuck up would be elicited with, yeah, well, well cool, all right. It's mm. there to confound people, you know, like, did they just say that? Do you remember when meh was really big? Uh, like, M-E-H? I oh, remember, like, in worst. school where it was just like, uh, like, that was a big thing. Like, what kind of comeback is that? It's Blink-182 comebacks all over again. But I can appreciate shut the fuck up not being the ideal comeback, you know? But again, that mm. leads to Adam Sandler territory. Adam Sandler, mm. I'm going to make this voice and it's going to be really funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just repeating back what someone said in the, in another voice is not that great. I hate that there are no metaphors on this album. There are no, absolutely no similes or any sort of wordplay. For a rapper, that is fucking ridiculous you dissect like you know eminem lyrics and there's like three layers there you're like oh my god i didn't get this until i read it or whatever you know i thought i got it and now he's like andy kaufman in my brain but there are literally i've gone through the lyrics there are no metaphors on this album and it is so sorry but nookie is a metaphor for sex yeah but there's okay there are no good or clear or cl- clever metaphors. It's all now we're talking. Now we're talking. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I can agree all with that sentiment. Do, all you have to do, Fred, is just some double entendre sort so of stuff. Is he literally taking a baked biscuit product, a cookie, and and sticking it up one's rectum? Is that a literal phrasing? It, there's no. I, metaphor or allegory there there's no subtext it's i did it all for the nookie the nookie so you can take this biscuit based product and proceed to aggressively insert it into your anus yeah, or was I, he I referring so, yes. to his penis as the no, biscuit? no there's no there's no referring to anything it is what it is like it is what it is you know and it's not that like direct punch in the face like um Maybe like the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or something like that. You know, it's not like punk, raw. It just, and it's not heart wrenching or anything like. That. It's just like I like putting my dick in things. Do you hear me? Get get up. Fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Put my dick in that. That's basically I'm gonna break it. Matthew's bridge. Put my dick in it. Yeah, yeah. I put my dick in a Matthew's bridge. Yeah. <laughs> um. I hate that Fred Durst keeps telling me to get up, even though it's on an album, and reminding me that they're in the house, y'all. Uh, and what the fuck is the song No Sex? Because that shit is so dumb. When he's like, should have kept my pants on this time. It is a great melody and a great chorus, but he just wastes it. Absolutely wastes it. Do you know the song I'm talking about? I always skipped that one, to be honest with you, dude. Should I kept my pants on this time? You know, oh, and he's like, R- Richard Cheese covered it then. Awesome. <laughs> a one, a two. Um, also, I did he, it all for the nookie. He doubles so down because do later he goes on to make a song um, on Results May Vary called Eat You Alive, which is allegedly I, about Britney Spears. I fucking hate this song. Apologies. I like that song quite a lot because Again, it is. Oh, It is a great melody, a great riff, great sound. But then when he starts going into, um, no doubt that I'd love to sniff on them panties now. Um, like, yeah, that's a bit much. Damn, you're so hot. Yeah. <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it gave Bill Paxton a starring role in a music video, though. Rest in peace, Bill Paxton. And wasn't it Thora, Thora Birch? 
I nearly said Thora Heard, but that was a sect- septuagenarian actress on Last of the Summer Wine and stuff like that. Yeah, it was Thora Birch, wasn't it? Yes. In the music video. I got video. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. You haven't even watched the music video where he, he basically kidnaps this girl who I can only assume is the the conduit that is because it's about him and Britney Spears in a relationship, isn't it? Allegedly. Oh, oh no, he unless was into her was and big, she did she wasn't into him. Unless that was another big troll that he didn't actually uh do anything with Britney Spears and that's part of the performance art. But yeah, the music video is essentially he's tied up the female object of his affections and he's made this really intricate kind of fairy light infested hub with a megaphone where he's screaming in her face. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. I have seen it. Yes. Um, it's absolutely. fucked up, man. It's like, well, I don't know. Does this, does this advocate? They banned straw dogs in the UK because there was an ambiguity between sexual violence and women might get into it. You just, just got to have enough time violating them before maybe they get into it, which is fucking disgusting. And I understand why the BBFC had a problem with straw dogs because of that ambiguity. So with that in mind, the ambiguity of that music video of, Hey, you know, you just scream in a young person's face with a megaphone a lot of the time then ultimately you can become president of the United States of America. Very well put. You go from that, like the no sex thing. I should have kept my pants on. And, you know, he did win 70 million from Gorka when they published that sex video, which I saw very early on the internet. When oh, the IT so I watched that as well, got- man. It's a rite of passage if you're a new metal fan. It's that and watching Gene Simmons... Watching Gene Simmons have sex with his shirt on, like full fucking shirt cocking it. It's awful. I've not seen that one at all. Oh, yeah. Do yourself a favor after this, man. It's it's pretty bad. Gene Simmons will probably sue us for that. But, you know, you can't sue us if we've got nothing. We're playing characters. Yeah, we are playing characters. I am actually a Canadian who takes great enjoyment with jotting up a running tally of how many times i can get away saying um and you know uh i match you um and i raise you uh like so there we go there's our vocal ticks everyone if you want to tune in it was like a car crash you drive past you know you shouldn't look because you know this could be vile horrific visceral all things that you can use to describe that Fred de Sex tape. I, I remember at one point when he was, can we be really scientific? Like really kind of clinical about this. All right. Uh, I recall at one point when he was entering the female, he was fornicating with at the time from a position from behind, which is commonly referred to as, um, the dog style. And I just remember like showing my mate and my mate's going, oh, who's who's doing that? Who's doing that? And then the next minute, Fred Durst without missing a beat goes, oh, yeah, she's grabbing my balls, man. Yes. Like he's performing in front of an audience once again. And, and my friend was mortified. He was just, oh, my God, what are you doing? Why are you showing me this, you know? It's not the sight of a penis that is making me question things, you know? I'm all for homoeroticism. Two guys watching a penis entering a female's vagina. There's nothing more manlier than that. But the fact that it's Fred Durst, that's that's where I take exception, man. It's so good. Um, And I wonder what happened to that IT guy. I think it was Julian Assange. It's that only like hey, what WikiLeaks? Do you reckon it was proto WikiLeaks, proto fapping? Yeah. So yeah, you go from no sex, and then what? What's your other option here? You go well, Nookie. Nah, the Jonathan Davis track, really quite good, um, especially because it goes like that when it goes from what's it called? I've written it down. Nobody like you into Don't Go Off Wandering. That, that that's the highlight of the album for me. But then it goes into Show Me What You've Got, and that is 
an obvious cheap grab that they ripped up. They ripped up Cambodia for that. Is that right? They ripped up Cambodia, and it's just like them listing cities' names because you know the people like in Kansas City would share that with their friends. Oh, he mentions us. He mentions Denver. He mentions, you know, LA, New York. Um, you know, where you at? Jacksonville. But ultimately, I hate that I still remember those lyrics. Rochester, so Louisville. He's going for the cheap pop, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I And I really dislike that despite being a band that you cannot take with you as you grow up, you can take Korn when, with you. You can take Slipknot. You can take Deftones with you as you grow up, you know? Yeah. You can mature with them. You can go back to them and visit them. There is a large chunk of people that still have and really love this band and take them with them, even though they're, they're not great songs with no real meaning but pure anger. And if you want to listen to anger, there are angrier bands who are much rawer and more intense. And I mean, some of, yeah, some of those bands don't even require lyrics. You could listen to a great length of Opeth who have lyrics but also have, you know, eons of instrumentation within their songs so if you're looking for something uh, like Merzbow is another good example the whole noise rock scene you could if you want to tap into that aggressiveness it doesn't have to be this juvenile shut the fuck up suck my dick fuck you man you can be a bit more reserved and cultured I mean, it's like going back to the Deftones episode, Reese, when we were talking about how White Pony was this refined kind of ball of of anger and resentment in a really good way. And I think Limp Biscuit is more of a case of um, I'm just gonna like start a fight with anybody and everybody, kind of frat boy style. Yeah, and and not have the strength or the skill to back it up i'm just going to start the fight ultimately this is my final point on this album and i I really believe you'll agree and i hope you do but if you don't that's fine i hate that i was at the exact right age and the exact right moment in my mental development where this album appealed to me and i fucking loved the shit out of it there was something that i would have ranked significant other higher than follow the leader uh, at, at times and like this was the album for me and it hit me right at the exact wrong time for my development, I think. But there is no substance there. It is like just eating cheeseburgers from McDonald's or Happy like eating, Meals every eating, day. Eating candy floss and it's really enjoyable, but by the end of it, you're crashing off a massive sugar high and your teeth are itching because it's just so much sugar. And now... I actually really enjoy Significant Other, primarily for the fact that I enjoy it as much as I enjoy LMFAO's Party Rocker Anthem and as much as I enjoy um, early ABBA and the disco scene in the sense that it's a party album. If you look at it and you don't take it as this testament these this kind of fundamental this is how i'm gonna live my life y'all it's great not that any albums should have you do that the only thing that should have you do that is catcher in the rye as per john lennon's killer but i like it because it's just so 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 ott it's just it's just incredibly gratuitous with everything so I can appreciate people not liking it because, you know, at, at, at that time, at that place, it it was easily targeted. It was like smashing pumpkins in the 90s for, for depressed teenagers, you know. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, to quote The Simpsons. At the time of the place when you're going through puberty as a male and you just have this kind of sudden surge of testosterone and you don't know what to do, Break stuff does become your anthem. But you're right. For anyone to take it as a serious piece of art, which I believe Fred Durst would no doubt tell you that it's a great piece of performance art. It's like Tony Clifton appearing on an episode of Taxi, you know. It's it's a shambolic 
unadulterated, not mess, but just gratuitous performance. I call bullshit on it. I think that they just tapped into the the whole kind of angry young white man mentality and co-opted, you know, black music and black culture to do it, i.e. hip-hop. I couldn't and haven't put it as well as you have. I just rambled and I'm the Ask Adam Sandler how, of this I was podcast. About, I was about to do an elegant moment on these podcasts, man. That's what the audience come for. Me and my character and seeing how my character develops into the ultimate fucking rambling idiot. And me allowing people to peer through the veil of my performance to see the intellectualism that I actually provide. Speaking of providing, who's uh, today's advertisement from? Um, can't quite remember. Let's cross to them. You've looked up corpse paint black metal tutorials on YouTube. You've driven 90 minutes out of your suburban home to take a band photo in some wooded area. You've got spikes on your wrists. You've conditioned your hair. And now, you're competing in your first ever battle of the bands and they're asking for your logo for the poster. Well, thankfully, you've got a death metal logo. That's right, death metal logos. They've got points and spiky bits and they're totally unreadable. And best of all, they look exactly the same. There's no way to tell them apart. Death Metal Logos are proud sponsors of the Baccio Death Trip podcast. Death Metal Logos, blend in with the crowd. Fucking hell, I remember going to a house party once, going into a basement and going, fucking hell, that's a pretty mean looking Death Metal logo you've got there, bro. And it's like, nah, it's just black moldy. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to Death Metal Logos. Uh, next week, Benj, what are we going to talk about? Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, an album that well basically led me to get my first and only tattoo and that would be soulfly's self-titled album featuring a bloody assortment fred durst chino marino benji webb all, all sorts but that's a story for another time literally next week like if you just tune in you'll hear us talking about it uh that's what this podcast is and we'll see as we say every week benji what do we say every week <laughs>